I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Our guest on Battleground today is Eugene Scott. I'm sure many of you know Eugene. He covers identity politics for The Washington Post, and he's the host of the Next Four Years podcast. Steve is not going to be available for today's recording. He's actually flying to L.A., so I'll be hosting solo today. But before I get into the conversation with Eugene, I want to talk a little bit about the events this week, which are momentous and historic, and what they might mean for the future of our country. Well, I'm recording this on Friday. I'm sure many of you have been following events closely this week, either live or catching up at night. You know, for me, it's just really sad and, and distressing when you see the video that was put together by the House impeachment managers. You see some of the clips we'd never seen before. We knew folks were in danger, I think, this week, really furthered our understanding how close members of the Senate and House came to injury or death. You see the connection between Trump's very first comments. Well, if I don't win, the election was stolen. And I thought the House impeachment managers did an excellent job of making sure this wasn't just about January 6th and the rally at the White House and Trump's tweets, as critical as they are. You know that this was an organized insurrection and Donald Trump was the chief organizer for it. I do think what is interesting is you do see some Republicans, they don't quite come out and say it, but if you read between the lines, what they're saying is, yeah, well, listen, if Trump was still in office, we probably would vote to convict him, but he's not. I do think that Donald Trump's ability to win the White House again, if he were to run and win the Republican primary, which I think quite possibly could do both of those things, is made much harder by this week. I think this is seared into the public's consciousness now. And obviously, if he were to become a public figure again, this would be front and center. The question is, what of this week will live on and a play constructive role in our politics? And I think a lot can. So uh, the other thing I just say is the news out there on the pandemic, we're now up to a little more than 10% of the American population, I believe, who've gotten at least one shot, three or 4% that have gotten two. We have more vaccinations likely to be improved. Joe Biden just announced that they're going to have enough vaccinations they believe in supply by late July to get everybody vaccinated. Incredibly encouraging. But of course, when you read what our leading experts are saying, epidemiologists and others, about these variants and the race we're under, it's pretty scary. And could we have another surge of more virulent and contagious variants in March or April? Because what we see again is people are beginning to open up. Governor Cuomo just said he's going to open up indoor dining again, which I think a lot of people are concerned about. The question is, are we going to have another period in, let's say, late March or April that rivals what we went through, you know, kind of over December and the first part of January? But we are in good hands here. And what you can see is Joe Biden, I think, is going to be able to deliver on, you know, some fundamental promises. He's going to get the country vaccinated, which hopefully puts the pandemic in a review. And he's going to get a, a really important, large, significant stimulus package passed which is going to help the economy. He's done a lot more than that. But on those two fundamental needs and promises, I think he's delivering. So much more we could talk about, both on impeachment and domestic politics, but let's bring in somebody who's an expert on all that, Eugene Scott. Eugene has been covering identity politics for the Washington Post since 2017. Prior to joining the Post, he was a breaking news reporter at CNN Politics. He's a D.C. native, 
and a former congressional intern. And I couldn't be more excited to talk to Eugene today about the intersection of identity and politics. Eugene, welcome to Battleground. Thanks for having me. Eugene, you spent a lot of time reporting on sort of culture in America. And I'm just curious, you know, we saw with the rise of Trump, it was definitely the view. And certainly there was a lot of people who supported Trump that don't fall in this camp. But, you know, there was kind of like a pride. This is a guy who fights for us. The country is becoming majority minority, you know, kind of the last gasp of the white patriarchy. And I think in Trump's defeat, that's only going to harden, right? And I think it will affect primary. So talk about that. I mean, I, I think that on days when I'm hopeful, I look at disinformation and I get less hopeful. <laughs> and I look at this dynamic, which is I think we have a huge percentage of the country that really, whether it's you know African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian-Americans, some cases it can just be younger people, you know, are kind of seen as the enemy. So just talk about that, because I think this is only going to get uglier, not better. Yeah, I think this moment has revealed in ways that are quite unique that your various identities shape how you view politics and how policy impacts you. Not perfectly. We all are multiple beings in the sense that we're not just a father or a man or white or urbanist. And so those things, when they come together, don't always lead to having the same worldview, but they certainly influence how we process things, including politics. And what is happening in this country is that it is diversifying, perhaps at a rate that is moving far more swiftly than many people who support the former president would like. And we have data that shows that. I think there was a poll from the Public Religion Research Institute shortly after Trump was elected, showing that many of his supporters, particularly white working class supporters, were talking about their disdain for the changes that were happening in America demographically when it comes to ethnicity and sexual orientation and faith and values. And that change is not going to slow down. Therefore, the the hesitation to accept it and the aggression and pushing back against it won't either. And you'll see continually, I believe, uh, the Republican Party put forward more candidates that take up the fight that Trump did to push back on where the country seems to be moving naturally. And you will see also Democrats, I think, continue to try to become this big tent party that finds room for the diversity of America as best as possible. And those two things are just going to constantly butt heads all the way up to the election booth. And it's going to be a challenge for everyone. Yeah, I think it's going to be 30 years of tension there. You know, I went to Iowa first in 1989. And so that was nine years after the 1980 presidential election. I was really struck as you met people throughout Iowa. So this is Democrats. They were either Carter people or Kennedy people. That was kind of their identity. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it was limited to their political identity. Similar, I think, you know, when you go to Iowa now, there's like Obama people or Clinton people from away. Mm. But again, it was confined to politics. It seems with Trump now, the identity of being a Trump person is not just about how you describe your political identity. It kind of describes so much more about you. Is that right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's fair. I think Trump people would say that, right? I mean, I think of a moment where Trump Jr. was distinguishing between Trump supporters and maybe Republicans. The reality is that there's a worldview, there's a sense of values, there's a approach to engaging your opponents politically outside of your tribe or even inside your tribe that 
is pretty distinct from anything else we have seen in our political uh, discourse, at least in the last 20 years. And that is just something that probably will continue to be the case. You know, I think it's so important that people remember that President Trump received more votes than any other sitting president in history. And that is just something that should help people realize just how prevalent and popular his politics and his pool continues to be even after he's left Washington. You know, Eugene, um, this is particularly true, I think, for white Americans. As I think about our politics today and kind of the American story, I think so much is based on kind of that post-World War II era where, you know, the data was true. The economy was rising. If you did not go to college, you could still make enough to have a home, do a couple vacations, you know, maybe have a boat. The gap between, you know, a CEO and worker was less. I mean, those were amazing times. And I think as it turns out, that was kind of where the American dream really, again, for white Americans, solidified. But if you look at pre-World War II, and if you look at really everything from the 70s on, that was a, a sort of golden era for certain people, but is not the norm. And so much of our politics made them make America great again, right? You know, yes, race was at the core of that, but it's also, you know, everything can go back the way it was. And kind of no matter your educational experience, you are going to be okay. And that's never coming back. And I'd just like you to talk about that. And listen, I think one of the most important moments in American history was November 3rd, because Donald Trump was defeated and Joe Biden was elected. That being said, I'm not sure that politicians in either party here are really being honest about the scale of the challenge here and how hard this is going to be. But as you reflect on that, I think so much of our politics over the last really, man, almost two generations is built on that post-World War II story, particularly with white Americans. It is. And it's understandable that if life was easier in the past for an individual and his or her family and people like them, that they would long for those days. And, you know, one of the things that I think former President Trump was able to effectively do is tap into that nostalgia and unfortunately make some promises about returning to those days that, of course, he just didn't fulfill in terms of jobs returning and a revitalization of the coal industry and just all of these things that just are really in the past. It's challenging to really go into these communities and say, hey, look, I know you've been working at this place for years, if not decades, and so has your dad and your brothers, but y'all are going to have to get a new skill. Like, that's not really a winsome argument in some spaces. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard challenge because there's so much wrapped up in our identities and about what we do and who we are and what this means. But one thing I wish happened more if people who played a role in changing economies told more of their own stories about how, look, they've had to make significant changes that were not that easy for them or that really led to some type of crisis in terms of identity and what it meant to be a part of this family or this community. But they found ways to make it work. And once upon a time, there were milkmen. And now we have refrigerators. Hmm. All of this is about technological advancement. So the reality is that change is always something that happened. And we've adjusted in many ways, when done well, we've been better off for it. And so somehow that message is going to have to get communicated to people who are hesitant 
to wanting to let go of a, a way of life that hasn't proved to be as prosperous as, I don't know, it's maybe future possibilities. But that can only happen when the future possibilities end up awarding some type of lifestyle comparable to what it is people are being asked to give up. Well, and that's a hard thing to guarantee given the trends in our economy. Right. We're going to take a short break. More with Eugene Scott when Battleground returns. Welcome back to Battleground. Do you think that Barack Obama's election, my former boss in 2008, you know, when you think about the Trump base, was that kind of a seminal moment where I was like, whoa, whoa, this is getting really serious. Now there's a black guy who's president. Well, I think that was obviously a shift in what it meant to be American that for as many people as were excited about that moment, there were other people who were incredibly uncomfortable and saw this as perhaps an aggressive step moving forward in a direction that made this country very different from what some individuals had hoped it would be. It's obviously very important to talk about former President Trump's political career as beginning with these birtherism attacks against former President Barack Obama. And that came from a place that had nothing to do with differences in political ideology. Right. That was rooted in great disgust for someone ascending to this position in American culture that had previously not been reserved for people who are Black and people who are the sons of immigrants. And there were a lot of people who were just uncomfortable with that moment and became increasingly so as the Obama administration put forward ideas that aimed to make America more equitable for women and LGBT people and people of color and, and all of these groups that had historically been marginalized. And some of the discomfort at best maybe came from an understandable place. I think the mainstream media and the political class paid far too little attention to the real challenges that white working class Americans faced and the role that policymaking had played in making these lives far more difficult than they needed to. And Trump found a way, obviously, to tap into that. But as much as economic anxiety was a real concern for many of these people, the reality is that it was cultural anxiety above all else. Right that made so many of these individuals very uncomfortable with where things had gone with Obama in the White House and were moving in the following uh, years. So Trump, now let's be clear, while he did get the most votes of any sitting president, every presidential election cycle, for the most part, more votes get cast. He lost this one decisively, uh, only got 46% of the vote in 2016, but he was kind of masterful about tapping in to that cultural anxiety and suggesting that he understood it and he would kind of be, listen, I'll just say it, kind of the white champion and linking that to the economy. But Eugene, when you look out at the rest of the people that are mentioned as potential presidential candidates, do you see anybody who is as natural as Trump at doing that? You know, when I look at a Hawley or a Cruz, to me, they're just imposters. They're trying to play the role and I don't see them ever ascending to Broadway. But you have any assessment of that as you watch people begin to go through the motions here? You know, it just does not seem like there's anyone that has emerged that can communicate with Trump's block the way that he can. Right. 
obviously, you know, Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton don't appear to come from the same places or live the same lives as many of the individuals in Trump's base, but neither did Trump. And so being one of them is not as important as being able to connect with them. And no one has yet been able to speak to this community the way that the former president has. And at this point, it seems like any effort to shape your communication style in that manner would just seem forced and would be met with some type of criticism. But who knows what will happen in the next four years? Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating series of tryouts, that's for sure. So I'm curious, Eugene, when you see polling today of a question like this, parents are asked, would you be comfortable if your child married, let's say, if you're a Democrat or Republican, Republican, Democrat? It's shocking to see that well north of 50 percent of people now say they have a problem with that. And, you know, a generation ago, it was quite small. And so as you think about how strong people's identity are linked to questions like that. I don't think we're going to make the progress we need to as a country until things like that change. And right now, you know, the other party is seen as an enemy. What gives me sort of despondency is there's been no adjustment in the Fox, Breitbart, Sinclair, Prager University ecosystem since the election. They're just doubling down. Democrats are the enemy. They want to destroy the country. So is that going to get better, do you think? Well, I don't foresee that changing for one reason more than any other. And that is that in 2021, what it means to be a Republican and what it means to be a Democrat are two very different things. And I think it's very easy for us to get caught up on how shocking that is that there are people who maybe are Christian and far more uncomfortable with their child marrying a Democrat than they are someone who perhaps isn't Christian. But what party you are a part of does tell us something about your worldview and your values and what you will defend and excuse and support. And I don't think that'll change. If anything, that'll become increasingly clear as we move forward, because the parties appear to be moving in different directions for various reasons. And the unity that I think so many people say they want to see us move towards, it's just going to be much more difficult to actually achieve in a climate that is as politically polarized as we currently are. And, you know, we often hear the phrase, there are two Americas. I mean, there are probably 50 Americas at this point, if not more. And that's not going to change. And I don't necessarily know that that is a bad thing. What becomes clearly problematic is when people say that there is no room for your version of America in my America. And that is something that we are hearing people on both sides of the aisle say with increasing regularity. Are there distinctions, though, Eugene, when you talk to, let's say, Gen Z or younger millennials? Does that give you some hope because you think there may be more opening there? You know, I am definitely hopeful when looking at the next generation for quite a few reasons. One, increased political engagement. I mean, the number of young people under 30 who are voting continues to go up each election year, including midterms. But I think the assumption that the vast majority of young people are more open-minded and inclusive is more exaggerated than it should be. We have data showing how well 
Trump did with young white people and young conservative people. Some of the Republicans who were just elected, who are the most, I don't know, quarrelsome in getting the headlines, are, are actually the youngest Republicans who appear to be modeling themselves after Trump. And so it is encouraging seeing the next generation of people in this country look at our political climate and say, this is not what I want for my present or my future. But there are quite a few folks who have realized that parroting the talking points that have made the opinion hosts of Fox News so successful, there are quite a few young people who have decided that that is the route for them to go. Right. Battleground is going to take a quick break. We're back on Battleground with Eugene Scott. So, Eugene, you have commented on the issue of student loan forgiveness, and I'd love to talk about that for a minute. Let's play this from Senator Elizabeth Warren on this issue and then jump into a discussion. Canceling student loan debt is the single most effective executive action that President Biden can take to kickstart this economy. Canceling student loan debt is the single most effective executive action that President Biden can take to help close the racial wealth gap. Canceling student loan debt is the single most effective executive action President Biden can take to lift the economic prospects of tens of millions of young Americans. Data show that canceling the student loan debt would result in greater home ownership rates, more housing stability, improved credit scores, higher incomes, higher GDP, more small business formation, and more jobs. Canceling student loan debt is good for you, whether you have student loan debt or not, because it is good for our economy. Canceling student loan debt would help close the black-white wealth gap by 28 points for African-Americans and by a similar number for Latinos. Again, the single most effective action that the President of the United States can take. Quite compelling, both I think the moral argument, the economic argument, but talk about how you view this issue. As we know, this is an incredibly popular idea with the base of the Democratic Party. The student debt crisis has just crippled and paralyzed so many Americans and prevented them from checking the next boxes of maybe adulthood that they long to or that at least previous generations have been able to. But we know that this perhaps is not as popular of a sell to people outside of the base. And I think the Biden administration is going to have a difficult time convincing people who are perhaps not in the base of its party that this is in the best interest of all Americans, which is something that we saw Senator Warren try to explain. And it'll be really interesting to see what changes happen in the next few years in terms of popularity for this issue. And I think many advocates for debt cancellation are there for the long haul. They have no problem still making this case, even though there's not a lot of buy-in right now, because their belief is that this is what is important and this is what is needed. But it is something that I would be surprised to see 
make uh, significant gains in terms of overall approval and support from this administration before the midterms. Of course, you know, so much of the arguments against it is, what about everybody didn't go to college? And the truth is, you know, one of the tragedies of the student loan situation is such a high percentage of people obviously don't finish. They have the loans and they didn't finish. So they're, for the most part, then sadly sort of capped on their income potential. And those are some of the worst circumstances. I'm curious when you think about some of the arguments against, and obviously there's a lot of different policy designs. One of the arguments is, well, okay, you want to forgive it for everybody over the last period of years, but what about the next cohort? Like, how do you think about some of the arguments that are being made and and the best way to combat them? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most effective approaches that's going to maybe change how this is perceived by the masses is by not viewing it individualistically. Because preoccupations with fairness and even justice will make some of those who are less skeptical about the merits of student loan forgiveness get stuck on how is this good for me or how does this not harm me? And so whatever arguments can be made that help people realize that ultimately having fewer people owe thousands in debt benefits the economy more, be it allowing them to have more disposable income or invest or to be more philanthropic or to use their funds in any other way that just helps society at large opposed to paying back a company are the arguments that are perhaps going to gain the most traction. And I think it's something that people who really, really invested in making this idea more mainstream are going to have to think about more often than just sharing even something like personal testimonies, because those don't always connect with people the way we may have hoped or wanted. Right. I mean, the thing about this issue is a lot of Americans do know somebody who would be affected by this, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the power of that is pronounced. So I do think you can build your storytelling on that fact that a lot of people know somebody, whether it's a close family member or a friend or a friend's child who would benefit. And I think understanding that's important. I'm curious, and this is less for you aspirational because you'll get to go do all these things probably from your perch at the post. But as you think about In a post-Trump in the White House period, we're coming out of a pandemic, all this disinformation, challenging economy. When you think about, here's the two or three sort of storylines I'm most interested in that I want to pursue. I just love to hear you talk about those a little bit because I'll I'll be excited to read them. I'm very interested in the future of Trumpism and just what the Republican Party will become. If the GOP continues to double down and align itself behind Trump. And if they don't get the the victories that they are hoping to in 2022, if at some point leaders stand up and say, look, we just can't keep moving in this direction, or if they just continue to adopt the view that this is where the voters are, so this is where we will be. Mm -hmm. Very interested in seeing what happens there, because as of right now, it seems like the party is being led by the voters. For sure, yeah. I think to some people, in theory, that doesn't sound wrong. That sounds maybe even noble, but the direction in which the party is being led is one that is highly unpopular with most Americans. And so I wonder if the Republican Party at some point will say, you know what, we actually need to do some more winning instead of just being loyal. On the left, I'm very interested in seeing how this party that aims to be a big tent gets 
as many people on the same page as possible when it comes to putting some of these big ideas into actual legislation. There is some great diversity over there in terms of how best to solve so many of the issues that people on the left, regardless of what wing they are in, care about most. And some of the solutions being proposed are very, very different. And so I'm really wondering how will the left moving forward be able to do what it is that they say they want to do with so many different people at the table trying to influence decisions. I think AOC, if I recall, at some point in 2020 said, you know, we obviously live in a predominantly two-party system, but if you were in a different system where you had four or five, six major parties, she and Joe Biden probably wouldn't be in the same party. And so I think right now, because of the desire to get rid of Trump, because we're under an economic and health crisis, and I think Biden's off to a good start, peace is, is broken out. But I think that won't last forever. It's going to be challenging. Well, Eugene, thank you for your time, for the great reporting and, and writing that you do and your podcast. I think it's essential reading and listening to understand where America is. And as you rightly point out, the most important question is where it's going. Thank you so much for having me. Hang in there. You as well. Thanks. I want to thank Eugene Scott for joining us on this episode of Battleground. I really enjoyed that conversation with him. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams did research for this episode. And Christian Castro-Rizel is our executive producer.